welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guests on today's episode are the founders of In Sheikh's Clothing. Before I read you their bio, let me read you a little blurb about In Sheikh's Clothing, which can be found online at insheikhsclothing.com. Sheikh is spelled S-H-A-Y-K-H and the letter S for the possessive, insheikhsclothing.com. Of course, there'll be a link in the episode notes. This is a service and website set up to support survivors of spiritual abuse around the world and to prevent spiritual abuse through education and preventative training in Islamic institutions. Services include coaching for those who have faced abuse, cult exit, recovery coaching, and policy formation. The founders of this initiative are Dania Shekfe and Danish Qasim. Dania has been selected as a rising star by super lawyers for the years 2015 to 2019, which is an honor awarded to less than 2.5% of attorneys. She conducts legal seminars on topics including business law, litigation, and conflict resolution. Dania has also been heavily involved in various Islamic organizations as a student, volunteer, and board member for over a decade. In her years involved, she witnessed a lot of corruption and began addressing it by authoring policies and procedures institutions can adopt to prevent and address spiritual abuse, as well as providing legal services and advocating for women who were victims of spiritual abuse themselves. Denya has her law practice in the state of Illinois, where she resides with her husband and three children. Danish graduated from UC Berkeley in 2010 with a BA in Religious Studies. He began a formal study of the Islamic sciences in 2006 with local teachers and served as an Arabic translator while in college. Upon graduating, he dedicated himself to full-time traditional Islamic studies. Most of his overseas studies were in Tumrat, Mauritania, which is a remote area in the country of Mauritania made famous by the well-known scholar Murabit al-Hajj, rest in peace. There, Danish studied fiqh, Arabic, tezkeh, hadith, and aqidah. He is now working on his doctorate on the topic of spiritual abuse in Islam at the Western Institute for Social Research in Berkeley, California. Danish has been working with victims of spiritual abuse for 10 years, as well as adults facing bullying and relationships with narcissists. He teaches Arabic and Islamic studies privately, and is a certified assertiveness and performance coach. So that's the copy that I wanted to read about both the organization and the founders. On a personal note, as I tend to find myself saying in the beginning of these interviews, I feel we barely scratched the surface. There's definitely a lot more to be said, a lot more questions that I have, but I wanted to make it bite-sized for listeners. I think this is an important topic. I also admit that this is probably a controversial episode, a controversial con conversation. Uh, abuse and spiritual abuse, unfortunately, are serious matters that can have devastating and catastrophic effects on people. Perhaps this is maybe why we don't like to talk about it. I'm not entirely sure. But the hurt is real, the pain is real, the struggle is real, and I think it's about time that we have this conversation. So this is my little attempt to do that. Without further ado, please welcome our guests, Dania and Danish. Danish, Dania, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Uh, we're trying to manage everyone in different locations in the in the country, so I appreciate you guys making the time during the holiday seasons. I'm sure everyone has family obligations, kids and whatnot. Um, so to be respectful of your time, I just wanted to dive right in uh, to talk about your project uh, in Sheikh's Clothing and uh, to just start by asking simply, how old is this project? So this is something that uh, locally I've been doing for about 10 years now. Um, and then 
in 2016, I was connected to Danya because we'd worked on a case together. Um, and then she had her own experience uh, that she can mention. And then just when we were doing stuff um, without Inshake's clothing, we realized that this is a really big problem and we need to take it to the next level. And we began working uh, for the website, for the organization. And then in the 2017 Ramadan, we launched. Okay, so you guys have a previous, you know, working relationship on this type of, on these topics, th these type of issues. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, so I guess we worked about, what, like a year, year and a half before we actually officially launched. We, like we were doing things beforehand. So, Daniel, it sounds like you had something personal. Do you mind sharing or is that not something you want to talk about? Uh, no, I, mean, I can share some of this. Basically, I, uh, I, I like I was involved with uh, you know Sufi Tariqa for a while, um, and I, I mean I would say I was pretty heavily involved, um, and I was you know a good student, and um, or, or, or like I tried to be. Um, and then I just saw some things that really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I saw that there were uh, that uh, like a culture that that had that that. That was starting to revolve more around people instead of the uh, excuse me or, or, or like instead of the dean, and also I felt like um, that some things were very secretive and I didn't quite understand everything, and, and, and it was due to, uh, due to the fact that people were very hush hush about certain things. It, I just felt like there was this cloud of secrecy, and plus I also witnessed a lot of bullying. Um, and like, given that we are adults, you know, I, I mean, like you really should not have someone coming in and to micromanage your life and your marriage and how you raise your children. I mean, it's great to have advice, that's fine, but it shouldn't be to a point where you feel shamed and humiliated. And so I, it's like around that time, I just parted ways. Um, I didn't make a big deal of it, but that was my personal experience. Um, but then I also saw people who, um, who had come to me with their own experiences with different groups. And so that's when I realized it was a widespread problem and it wasn't just my own experience. And that's when we, um, like me and Danish had like, gotten together with our skill sets and started to try to address the problem. So if I were to ask you very simply, other than the end of your relationship with that group, was it beneficial for you religiously, spiritually? I mean, did it? Do you look back and be like, yeah, you know, there were aspects that helped me, and they're still with me? Or do you think the whole thing was just a negative experience? Um, that's a complicated uh, question. That's going to have a complicated answer. I mean, I would say that. I mean, I learned a lot. I can't say I walked away, you know, with a completely bad experience. I mean, I learned some basic concepts of this excuse like self-discipline and fiqh and, and and like a, a community um but i've also I, I i mean i had to unlearn a lot of things too um for example um you know how you treat scholars of, uh, seem like we should have um uh, certain levels of respect for sure but not to a point where it becomes quite frankly cultish um and because it became so ingrained in me i had to see people for who they are and that is just human beings who can make mistakes um and so that's something that i have to unlearn um and just kind of just seeing like the dean in a more um broad way in the sense that there are multiple ways of doing things and it's not like you know because one scholar said something this is the only way or that you that you are on the wrong path if you for example follow a different madhab or maybe you do like different thickets this concept of like the chosen people um I, I, like that's not explicitly stated but you kind of get that sense that like well you know like i'm in this you know this like special circle of people um and so I, I, like i would still consider myself a traditional muslim i still you know follow madhab i still like you know pray and fast or hijab i mean if you want to classify that as a traditional muslim um but i just had to kind of see things from a different lens and just realize that um you know uh, uh, scholars can be very flawed so, I mean, you bring up something good, I mean, and this is for either you or, or for Danish. I mean, for for me personally, uh, Tasawwuf has always been a part of my training. And I think almost every single person I studied with at Al-Azhar, maybe with the exception of like one person, was uh, in a tariq or uh, either just by default or like, you know, naturally or, or heavily, like seriously involved. 
And when I read a lot of the stuff on your on the website on In Shakes Clothing, my I have two like broad conclusions. Number one is okay, that's not tasawuf. And number two, I have never seen that. I, I don't I can't even relate to that. Those types of stories. I don't even know. Uh, I mean, rationally, I understand, but that's for me very foreign. And yeah. one of the reasons I wanted to reach out is just to understand, like, what you know, what the hell is going on? Why, why is there's this huge disconnect? So I would say um, to that, uh, and let me know if I miss miss one of the points you mentioned. Um, so first of all, right, um, I've been around the the soul circles as well for a very long time. I was never in a tarika. I was around tarikas. So my experience kind of differs in that. Um, it was people I knew who were doing things. I I wasn't really part of a tariqa or, or any group, anything of that nature. But the soul, just to say, just to kind of echo what you said, of the soul being part of my training as well. And it was always, you know, what I always grew up listening to was like quotes from Sidi Ahmed Zuruk and Imam al-Ghazali being, you know, the most strict on refuting deviant practices of the soul. And uh, even where I studied in Mauritania, which was uh, Tiamarat, Murat al-Hajj's uh, village, Rahimahullah, they didn't practice tariqa, but were very tasawuf-oriented um, without tariqa itself. However, I visited a uh, big shiuch of tariqa, most notably uh, Sheikh Muhammad Hassan al-Khadim, who himself is a Tijani Sufi, um, Sheikh of tariqa, but he's also one who does like, you know, like Radu Shubahat and Radu Dalalat of the some of the practices that other uh, tariqas have taken on. So I, I would say that, you know, in circles very dedicated to ilm, you won't find a lot of the really out there deviant practices, you know, but abuse is also not de deviance. It's, it's not the same thing. So for example, you'll see really crazy practices on YouTube if you type in uh, Sufi tariqas, but that's still different than abuse. And the reason is a lot of the tariqas that abuse that are more uh, appealing to people who care about ilm, they'll have a different public and private um, way of running things. So the people who are abused sometimes in the ones who outwardly are a lot more dedicated to following Sharia and there's nothing crazy about them on just first sight, they abuse in private and they give lip service to the Sharia. So they'll quote all the right things about, you know, the Janaheya of Sharia and Hakika and, and that everything is we do is murtabat bil Quran, kitab sunnah. So they give all the lip service of following the Sharia and never leaving that. But in private, they will do things that belie their public appearance and what they preach publicly. So you're not really going to hear about it in a lot of cases. And sometimes the scandal gets so big that it's just um, that everybody does end up hearing about it. So I, I know you just said kind of broadly crazy practices and you've never seen it. So I don't know what specifically we're talking about, but when it comes to like, for example, whether it's financial scams, uh, pedophilia, uh, like abusive, exploitative marriages, or just a lot of bullying, that doesn't always happen publicly. Then even when it gets to like cult beliefs about like, you know, believing the sheikh can see you at all times, he's in the room with you. That a lot of times is when you get hired into the tariqa. So even normal looking tar tariqas that... Um, again, all the lip service to following the Sharia, they'll have that actually even in their books. And I've seen this myself. And uh, even by close by people who are very close into popular Turuk, that there's nothing outwardly strange about them. And it's just once you get to the higher level, then the dichotomy grows from the Khas to the Awam, and then the different levels of the Khas. So this stuff really happens. And, and what happens in, in these groups, again, that are more oriented to the Sharia, you have just a lot of Ta'wil. And uh, like one of my teachers mentioned, like it's just, it never ends. You can, you can justify anything once you get into it. Um, yes. Like to add to that, um, like that's really been my experience too, is that often is that like you have a scholar who will, or excuse me, like a sheikh who will publicly preach but then, like, once you kind of get more involved in the tariqas, when you start seeing some of the more, uh, 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 like, abusive practices, and I think this is very common when a sheikh has a popular following outside of the country that he that he, he that he lives in. So if you, for example, have a sheikh in Canada, but then you have the students who live 
like uh, overseas or even in the United States. Um, but since they're not living near the sheikh, then like they don't see the sheikh uh, on a daily uh, or excuse me, like a daily basis. Um, and then plus, to be honest too, is that sometimes people get targeted and groomed for certain roles, and like that's when you start seeing the abuse. So, so like if someone has a lot of money or they're very influential, um, that person will get special treatment, but they might also be the target. Uh, 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 excuse me, like of some abuse because if they have a lot of money, then they or like the. the uh, he sheikh and his close followers will start to, um, you know, treat that person in a special way, uh, or, or like with the goal of having access to that money. And so it kind of depends sometimes on who you are and if you have some sort of extra benefit, and you'll start seeing some of that abuse up close too. So, you guys, you you that's a a lot to unpack. So I want to come back to some of this, but I want to pick up. Uh, maybe something Danish that you mentioned and you know you helped make this differentiation between uh, in the past we have a literature and a tradition of people calling out deviant uh, right. sharia behavior like you, you mentioned uh, Sidi Ahmed Zarrukh you can also mm-hmm. add Eliza ibn Abdul Salam or Abdul Ghani Nabulsi or some of these you know famous uh, who are you know very very much Sufis but also uh, masters of the of the outward sciences but right. they're really talking about you know, you're you're engaging in some kind of act that's against the Quran and the Sunnah. You guys are you're making a differentiation between that and sort of abuse of people, right. and I, I see that that's that's very helpful. Uh, so, what I meant is I, that abuse of people. I mean, the abuse of the Sharia. Unfortunately, we see a lot of groups that are like loose with the ilm. Like it's very common right. that they'll do things that are you know totally sketchy, and and but everyone knows that that stuff is wrong. But right. the abuse of the people, what you guys are saying, it's it's a little bit more diabolical because it's it's you're in you're, you're, you're you guys are mentioning okay you're in very deep you're very close there's a lot of dunya at play either I'm a person of influence or I'm a person of means or wealth and therefore I'm somehow of benefit to the sheikh slash the tariq so can you guys help me listeners understand a little bit more about those dynamics I mean there are a lot of testimonials. Yeah. And accounts of spiritual abuse on your website, which I'll link in the episode notes. And to be to be frank, some of that stuff is very scary and very dark. But can you guys give us a sense of how that happens? I, I presume it's not it's not by the snap of a finger. I, I'm I'm presuming right. that you sort of you're you're walking yeah. very slowly down that tunnel. So first of all, I would just say that even when you say the groups that don't follow Sharia, it's it's not obvious either. I mean. You're like, and again, I read your bio, like, mashallah, you're, you're a star student and very advanced in your, uh, like, fic, mashallah. So, like, there will be things that are obvious to you that you really have to kind of see from the point of a person that doesn't have any, like, academic recourse. And and is just told to, like, you know, these are the ulama, sit at their feet and, and follow the scholars. And they are also, like, outwardly very sound. So that's one way of, like, just to kind of understand that it's not obvious to most people. So, but even like now, just to kind of stick to the ones who do outwardly follow Sharia, which is even less obvious, right? Um, so yeah, it's often a slow path, but not always because see, the thing is when people have strong emotional intelligence and the narcissistic personality is really important to understand that these are people who in a nutshell understand things that are right and wrong, but don't care for them and they don't really care if something's wrong they rationalize their behavior very easily and they don't have moral breaks so like the machia it's like a machiavellian personality right so they're willing to run over people and use people like tools for their own and, and here danish sorry to cut you off but you're talking about the sheikh yes often so it's yeah so i'm saying when you have this type of sheikh it's not really they they can very quickly assess what a personality is that'll be more vulnerable and more likely to listen to somebody and they're very simple things to see for example if they pick up on the language you start using quickly if you just walk in a certain direction or or take a first step somewhere else are they going to like follow you these are just ways to kind of assess people out so one one way is to see who are the more like easy to influence people and they don't take those individuals don't take as much time to really like uh, groom and manipulate for your, and exploit for your own ends. 
Other times, yes, it is a slower process, but they're also very well aware of what people are looking for. So somebody who's very much about ilm and like actual suluk and and has a firm standing in Sharia, a firm footing in Sharia, they're not going to be as as uh, susceptible. So those people, even if they're in the same group, often won't see or be aware of a lot of the abuses unless other murids come to them. I mean, I know we're just talking about in the in the context of Tariqa, but this is by no limit, by no means limited to Turuk, and it's not to say that all Tariqas are like this at all. But I'm just saying how it happens in the context of Tariqa. But they also see, for example, these wide-eyed individuals that come, um, and they're just really looking for often a spiritual experience, so or or just some sort of prestige or a group to belong to, right? So it's not necessarily even always about saluk. But even if it is, the stuff can still happen. So they'll give them the attention, be the father figure these people are looking for, the mother figure when women are involved in Tariqa, that happens as well, um, and give them importance, uh, give them a lot of special attention, that care, that uh, desire a lot of people have, that like, oh, I wish my father like raised me Islamically and gave me tarbiya, but now my sheikh is doing it. So they fill a lot of those voids. And they also exploit them at the same time. And this is what causes a lot of confusion because there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad. And then the individual who's targeted often struggles to figure out, well, does he know what he's doing? Does he mean to do it? Is it actually for my own good? And then they'll be like inundated with uh, Sufi stories about like really like one-off type stuff about like the sheikh just being incredibly harsh or putting his murids through all sorts of tests. And they'll believe this is a test for my ikhlas. Um, this is a purification for me. My nafs is just so, you know, dirty. These are the things that I that I need. Uh, or they'll just be made, turn into like a, a khadim for the sheikh, like a, a servant. All of that will happen. And if the people are wealthy, they'll often be treated well, but they'll be told your path to Allah is service. Um, and, you know, they'll be given stories of like, you know, sahaba who just uh, put a lot of money, fi sabilillah, and the, and the, you know, the way the prophet honored them. And in, in these analogies, the sheikh himself is the prophet, which is, itself a very problematic, but that that's sort of how you see it. So does that answer the question? Yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 we're, we're getting there. I mean, maybe it would be helpful if you can give one or two specific examples. The reason I say that is a lot of what you're saying, I could come back and be like, well, you know, there's, there's a place for tough love. Uh, if I'm trying to work out, get in shape, I'm not looking for a trainer that's going to make me feel good about myself. Well, I mean, I hope they don't make me feel yeah, worse yeah, about myself. Yeah, yeah. But they're going to be, you know, you know, get out of bed, you know, hit the gym, you know, you know, move your lazy behind. There's like some tough love. I don't see right. that. Sometimes we need tough love. I, I've definitely received my no, no, fair share of tough love. But I presume that what you guys are talking about is way beyond that. It's it's not tough love. No, 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 tough love benefit. That's the ultimate. I think that's one marker, but I think that I think Danish will have better insight. But <laughs> so, I, mean, I, I recently wrote an article on this called "Physical Beatings and Sexual Abuse in Islamic Schools" and addressed that very point. Um, and it, it kind of like throughout the website, actually. So, tarbiya is to nurture the soul; it's not to break the spirit. So, once it gets to breaking the spirit, that's very different than like harshness that's needed, a type of earnest that's needed that benefits the person, because the murabi is always looking at the maslaha of the murid, right? Just like the parent to the child. So yes, um, sometimes you have to be harsh, just like just like raising children, really. Um, and if we use that analogy, but that's not the same as abuse. And one of the ways you kind of see the difference is what's recognized by Urf as abusive versus uh, just tough love and discipline. And we have Sharia as well for like, uh, even if the Urf doesn't recognize that we have absolutes. I mean, these are like human rights at the end of the day. So like Imam al-Ghazali will mention that the teachers, they have to be positive role models and be nice and not publicly humiliate, things of that nature, because those are the things that lead to like really bitter experiences and have more to do with breaking the spirit rather than nurturing the soul, which is tarbiya. And again, harshness is not supposed to be the norm. And 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 the, the sheikh proves that he's not doing this as a calculated move once if it's lashing out out of anger, if it's his like MO rather than just strategically to better the person and seeing if it's really in the maslaha in the benefit of the murid himself so this is not to say that we need to walk on eggshells and like just you know not ever be tough on people but tough as an mo is very far from the sunnah i mean allah says if you were harsh-hearted they would have fled from you right so can you and, give us an example of a transaction that would be abusive a transaction or do you mean like for tarbiyah no no like an example in the in the cases that you guys are dealing with 
in which it's a clearly a case of abuse. I mean, you, I know there's the accounts, but aside from the lengthy accounts that you guys have on the website, can you just give us, a, even if it's generic, an yeah, example? But what, specific, but what specifically? Any type of abuse that you guys are defining as abuse in this relationship between the sheikh and, and the I mean, maid. I mean, so, so for example, I mean, here's one, I, 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 like, I'm not exactly sure if that's what you're looking for, but one, I mean, common tactic that we see is that when a sh- when you have a student who, who, uh, who, like, goes to a sheikh or, like, one of the sheikhs, um, you know, uh, um, what's the word, like, khadims or, um, no, no, not the khadim, the, their, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. The the, the, the like, muqaddam is to say, for example, that I am in an abusive. Uh, excuse me. That that uh, that uh, uh, so and so in the tariqah has harmed me, or this other sheikh has harmed me, and so the sheikh or the muqaddam will be like, okay, I'm going to help you out. Um, here's what we're going to do to help address your situation, and then they actually go behind um, the the like victim's back and like. And like say bad things about the victim, uh, but still, but but still pretending to be on the victim's side, and then the sheikh will go to the victim and say, "Okay, here's what I did for you. I'm or like I spoke to the person, or like the person that you are accusing of, or excuse me, of whatever, and um, we are gonna come to a solution." And then that never happens, and it just becomes like just um, this. Stringing the like victim along for a promised justice that will never happen. So I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for. That's a very common tactic of abuse because because a sheikh is using their authority to actually harm the victim and actually lie to the victim. Is that I mean is that something? Well, I mean that that sounds that sounds more like crappy skills than than abuse. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, no, because it's very calculated. So it's not just like, oh, I, oh, like, you know, bad leadership or bad management. I mean, it was very purposeful because uh, because the sheikh does not want to expose his own friends. So it's, I mean, it's very calculated and purposeful. And and, and as Dani has mentioned, like, I mean, these are these are the patterns with a lot of individuals. I mean, it's it's not just like a one off. This is like what a lot of people do as their mo. And it's unfortunate, but there's a lot of one. If there's a scandal in the tariqah, we also have to understand that there's a lot of money at stake. And again, we're just talking about tariqahs because that's kind of the context this was brought up in. But in like these groups, there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of influence at stake. So when you have people regularly doing this, not just a one-off, because look, bad leadership and ineptitude exists. I wrote an article again on the website you can find in the section on spiritual abuse on why people don't help. Ineptitude definitely exists. But as uh, Dania wrote in her article on arbitrations, I mean, there are people who just do this as their MO. And it's just to kind of emotionally meet the needs of people who are disgruntled and have uh, faced uh, horrible be- behavior and just kind of give them that uh, comfort for a while, give them that, you know, e- emotional hug, so to say, about like, you know, it's okay, this isn't right, I'll take care of it. And then the same person they're supposed to be addressing and uh saying that you know this person what they did is wrong they'll end up praising that person very publicly and giving them higher positions and the person will keep doing it and more complaints will come and they do absolutely nothing about it and it's often uh, when these individuals who uh, claims are levied against they're high performers they they spread the tariqa they get more followers they're able to sell things and it's just overlooked for those uh benefits unfortunately so i could imagine trying to get out if you're if you're on the receiving end of the abuse i can understand that getting out of that is very scary because you know mm-hmm. you you you've you've got you've bought into a lot of this you know you've drank the kool-aid you're you feel like this person is a you know holy spiritual person and then it slowly unravels i can i could imagine being terrified you know terrified yeah. to get out of that so how tell us walk us through like the process when when people reach out to you guys individually with these, you know, harrowing uh, stories of sexual abuse, and you, you mentioned pedophilia, um, yes. you know, you know, astaghfirullah, uh, financial stuff. How do you guys help? Like, what's the process work without, you know, giving up anybody's uh, confidences? Yeah. But how do you guys, mechanically, how do you walk people through that, you know, to sort of safer waters? Yeah. So let me also just kind of, when 
because you know kind of just put a general like abuse so i don't know but like let me just give you another example real quick finances is when the sheikh says we need a zawiya and this is like a waqf and it's for the waqf for the tariqa then it's personal property for the sheikh as well and then he just takes it as like a home so that happens quite a bit as well. And then also using, you know, I saw... And then also makes rent. Sorry, it's hard to cut you off, but then also will rent certain parts of the Zawiya to make money for themselves personally. Right. But I'm Sorry, mean, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, that's like adding salt to the wound. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying just that perception yeah. would be enough, right? And then especially when you start using, you know, Ablaq Adir Jilani came to me in a vision. He said, we need to build the Zawiya. And then everyone feels so great because they're connected to like the great Oli of the past and they're getting this. So let that, me let me just you know. <laughs> interject a very quick Usuli yeah. lesson just for anyone that <laughs> that actually. See, see you're list. laughing, Tarek. You're laughing because you. But 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 this is people do. okay. Well, I mean, you know, Alhamdulillah, I I learned this, so let me pass it on, right? So yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> one of the one of the principles in Usul al Fiqh, one of the questions that Usul al Fiqh seeks to answer is how do we. Uh, what kind of information do we take to build religious authority? So, of course, Quran and Sunnah. But, but there is a question, can I build religious authority from a vision? And the ulama, they said, the only thing that's protected in the vision is the vision, not the words. So, if you have a vision of the Prophet, that's really the Prophet, because that's what he said in the hadith, But whatever the Prophet says in that vision has to be weighed in the balance of the Sharia because right. that is not protected. And there's a whole literature, you know, the whole satanic verses, right. you know, people are embarrassed by the, Muslims are embarrassed by the satanic verses, that story in Bukhari. But the reason we have that story is to teach us this exact lesson that the, the wording of the vision is not protected. So if I come and I tell you, look, you know, guys, Danish Daniel, Abdul Qadr Jilani came to me in a dream and told me that you guys got a closed shop. You know, you, you know, you could just, you give me the middle finger and walk away because what is that? That is that is, you can't build anything. <laughs> you can't build anything on the off that kind of vision. But, I just want to interject that because when I learned that, I thought it was the most. Yeah. That, that, that's that's valuable, but this is what I'm trying to say that a lot of people will believe that, and they absolutely do. And these are doctors, engineers, politicians, very intelligent people, and the sheikhs often know this is what they're looking for. First of all, we don't even have to believe this vision This vision actually occurred. But even if it did, as Allah says, that people can have all sorts of spiritual experiences, and that does not in any way, shape, or form lead to a maqam with Allah either. They're, they're not one in the same. A person can be very spiritual and very deviant at the same time. But second of all, it has, just as you mentioned, it has no shari bearing. So even if it's from a righteous person, there's no wahi anymore. It's not like it doesn't uh, have any, it's not an obligation for anybody to follow anyone else's vision, even if it's the vision of a righteous person. Right? So we need to add so this to your code of conduct, like, you know, uh, uh, this like line about visions. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous right, right. that very educated people would be convinced by something that's that's so flimsy. By a dream, and, I mean. And, and, and look, I, I appreciate that outrage, and this is what I want people to kind of pay attention to you, right? Too, right? Like this is obvious to you, but it's not for a lot of people, and this is exactly how it works. So, like, we might think it's obvious, it's not needed, but it truly is. And again, I can't tell you how many educated people, very knowledgeable, even about the outward Sharia, who will know this. It's hard to then say that your own sheikh has has misstepped when their own sheikh is the one doing it because just like there's a statement like no one is in a cult no one joins a cult meaning it's always other people in the cult like i always say like it's always the other turuk that don't follow sharia right yeah because yeah, it's yeah. very difficult to see it within yourself especially if you've had companionship with this person you know this person they're knowledgeable so yeah like, look building a zawi is a good thing it's like exciting like, can i just say also is that is that seems like a lot of that um that um, um manipulation is not always uh so obvious and ridiculous as you know like oh the sheikh saw vision like sometimes it's just like we want to uh keep uh keep this tradition alive for the sake of our children and so it becomes uh sort of a legacy so it's not always obvious and and like i know you kind of want to laugh but in reality it's really not that obvious uh because uh because like the sheikhs uh know that these students are often more educated and that that they're not going to buy that 
type of logic um, and those uh, the, and like those types of stories. And so, I mean, it's uh, I mean, there's so many ways to to like manipulate it's a person, and it's really not that obvious. I just want to make that clear, so it's not just like oh, like he, or, or you know, how could you believe that a sheikh said he saw a vision? It's just really not that simple. Sure. No, I mean, yeah. I, I, I laugh because of the, the proposition of, of taking something um, so serious from a vision. We have a we have a literature against that for that exact right. reason. Right. So, right. so if you don't know that, then I can see how I can see how. I don't want to like, you know, I just want people to assume that just because that they fell into this whole thing that means that that it was that obvious or that there was a whole literature against whatever tool that was used in that process of manipulation. That's all. So we, we got a little sidetrack. I was asking yeah, originally yeah, about sure. how you help people that sort of come to you. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe, Dennis, you were going to jump yeah, in on that. So it, it kind of overlaps with what you mentioned. So, for example, one of the big things um, or one of the big points that causes confusion is positive spiritual progress and experience. Right. So it, it actually relates to what you were just saying that like and, and what I mentioned about the spiritual experiences, that's not indicative of a muqam. Spirituality is like a muscle and you can build it through adhkar, through abstaining from food and even unlawful practices like uh, Soma Dahar. But it's it's not like it doesn't give somebody a higher muqam in Sharia to have more of a like spiritual unveilings and things of that nature. Now, if it comes as a byproduct of ibadah and it, and you're not deluded by it, that's a great thing. So, but um, that's actually part of it. One, uh, just understanding spiritual experiences is not a muqam and it doesn't uh, show that this person's a wali. God won't declare war on you if you're leaving. Um, because, first of all, that's not even ihanatul awliya if you just walk away. But second of all, you have to understand that wilaya and righteousness and salah is all defined by itibar sharia, by following the sacred law. Um, that would be one aspect. You know, just uh, what I'm saying is addressing points of confusion. Another one is you got a lot of good out of it as well. And yeah, a person can convey proper knowledge and not practice it, you know, and not practice can be uh, just the person was like not very upright, but the more in what we talk about for abuse is is actually a very abusive personality um very predatory likes suppressing people takes advantage of uh students and murids uh, for personal gain as well but if the knowledge is sound then you can still hang on to that knowledge and you should and continue learning with a different teacher other points of recovery especially when people were in these type of groups we're talking about is one of the most important things is getting settled in a different community because what happens is when people are in uh, these turuk or small spiritual groups, uh, even if they're not spiritual groups, that community becomes their world. So it's a small bubble, and they're often encouraged to view people outside as more negative, like just the awam, even if it's not nothing crazy, like but just like you just know they're awesome, yeah. yeah, like they're just average Muslims. They're not really into the extra spiritual stuff. They're not chosen like you are. But what they need is to kind of get rooted in a different community so they can understand that what they were told about no one's going to believe you doesn't exist outside this bubble. Like here we are understanding how ridiculous some of these claims are, but they're in a bubble where that's the norm and and everyone does believe it and they weren't believed when they said this stuff is ridiculous. But if they step outside, they'll see just how many people will accept this as ridiculous and they can learn properly and those opportunities really exist. Uh, they'll be threatened with uh, no one's going to hire you. You'll never do work, community work again, especially if they have like a, if they're entrepreneurs, no one's going to do business with you. And then they get to see like, you know what, that's not really the case. I'm in a more healthy community now. And that that aids a lot in their own recovery. And another point is just to understand that Salihin do exist and we should seek them out. But at the same time, we have end of times literature about the ulama dying and being replaced by Ayyamatul Mudalla. And that's that's also really important to understand that by like misguided leaders themselves and people who are just going to be speaking, but they don't have any like inward reality or even knowledge and understanding we see some of that or a lot of that manifest. However, um, what we need is to just sort of see that healthier uh, places do exist where people will honor you and then building on their own standards, their own uh, personal boundaries, which is probably the most important thing because you're never going to just uh, find a group that's perfect and then go on autopilot. So the point is to always have your boundaries because there's no shortage of these individuals in any area in sports, 
uh, in the workplace, nonprofits, activism, anywhere you go, you're going to run into narcissistic personalities. So what the individual needs to do is build their own boundaries, their own self-respect, and to understand what healthy interaction is. I assume that it wouldn't be far-fetched to, to um, guess that some people have actually left Islam because of this. Correct. And well, I, yes. And I will say like, Alhamdulillah, one of the really proud accomplishments of Inshaq's clothing for Dani and I is that people have also come back after leaving Islam from, from uh, conversations we've had and from Mashallah. looking at the material. And, and there's actually quite a few people where that's happened. And then many others who have said that they're on the verge of leaving Islam wanted to talk. Also, I mean, people who wanted to kill themselves, um, you know, and then like just the fact that, you know, we had this website and then we're willing to talk to them. And they saw that Muslims who are very concerned about the religion, have studied themselves, care about this and are addressing it. It really kind of restores being let down by religious figures. And when people won't be the first to say it, I'll, I'll, I'll often say as like an ending point of conversations, like, look, I know you were let down by people who donned the religious garb, but just remember a Muslim who was also very motivated by Islam uh, is the one is uh, someone countering this and, and really wants to help you as well. So, so it kind of puts them to have that positive experience as well. So, Denya, I wanted to just ask you specifically, I know that your background is, is the law, and uh, a lot of these uh, sheikhs, uh, in sheikhs' clothing, uh, abusive figures are uh, probably in the United States, uh, Canada, residents, citizens. Uh, so what, how has the legal approach been? How do you view it? Has it been impactful? Uh, what kind of results are you seeing if there's like this egregious abuse, you know, like some of these hor horrible accounts that you guys have on the website? Are you able to prosecute them? I know I was involved a few years ago with a situation in which there was sexual abuse in a school, in uh, a Quran school in Chicago. Uh, I was just brought on just to opine on a few things from like a Sharia point of view. So I, but, but, so I, and that was when I first started feeling, whoa, this, this stuff, that's pretty messed up, you know. And I think the guy fled the country. Uh, but from since you guys started this process, what are you able to do legally? So that's actually been a huge challenge because a lot of uh, the types of abuse are not technically uh, 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 crimes or, uh, or otherwise illegal. Um, so, for example, um, you know, taking a secret wife. I mean, what kind of civil suit like could you? Uh, sue, or excuse me, like, how would you sue someone when you were a secret uh, second wife? You know, especially um, like given the fact that uh, that uh, polygamy is not legal uh, in the United States, and um, and then uh, for example, like bullying. I mean, that's not really illegal, um, and you can't really sue someone just for mere bullying, or or like someone you know trying to trying to manipulate, excuse me, like manipulate you, um, because those are not crimes or legal actions, uh, we actually create our own code of conduct, which you, or, or like, which I'm guessing that you have seen. And so that's where we can use contract law where, um, students and institutions or people who like benefit from the institutions, like congregants and, uh, constituents, um, have a legal recourse in the event that certain actions perpetrated by, uh, Excuse me, like Islamic leaders, um, uh, these uh, the uh, the community can ho hold them accountable th th through the code of conduct. Um, yeah, but that's like contract law, and so it's really kind of something that we had to, you know, uh, conjure up with the legal uh, framework that we have. Um, um, so there are uh, other claims too. For example, um, in one case, or, excuse, or I, mean, I don't want to be too specific, but sometimes um, in the case where um, you have a sheikh who will, um, you know, tell students, "I'm trying to fundraise for a new, excuse me, like a new uh, building for an institution. Can you donate?" And then people donate, and then that money kind of disappears, or it goes into the personal accounts of, of these sheikhs. Um, these are. Uh, uh, excuse me, legally actionable crimes, excuse me, like, uh, well, uh, 
crimes, but also um, uh, potential lawsuits. But students often don't want to pursue uh, these claims in court for fear of um, some sort of backlash or, or, or that they just don't want to go to court or, frankly, that they cannot afford an attorney. Um, and so um, that is also a barrier. But um, uh, but this has happened, as you know, like you said, like in Chicago, that, uh, or, or, or like we had a case there. I'm from Chicago, and I remember that. And um, so it really depends on the parties and the actual claims. But, but like, again, like one gap that we have tried to fill in is the, uh, the claims that are not um, actionable in court or that are not technically illegal, but still harmful and through um, the code of conduct that, that we have created. So on, on the code of conduct, I, I, have, I have to say I'm very, um, very happy that you guys did that and uh, grateful because when I started community work uh, at the mosque level about five years ago, I started getting all in all of these situations where, where I felt, wow, you know, if I was, I can see how this can turn south. Uh, I deal with a lot of divorce issues, as you as you can imagine. Um, a lot of minors will, will come and they want to talk to me. And uh, if they want to talk to me about stuff at school, you know, after prayer on Friday, it's, whatever, it's like a one-off thing. But some one time I had a guy who, who reached out to me, he's a minor, and he had a homosexual experience and met somebody online, um, you know, reached out, just called the mosque cold. And I don't know how he got my number, but I'm, I, here I am talking to this like 15 year old kid about some guy he met online. And I'm like, oh, my God, this, this, is, this is so dangerous and so wrong on so many fronts. I actually called um, a physician friend. I spoke to a lawyer in the community and I started realizing if we don't have these rules and parameters laid down, this is going to be a big uh, it could be a big problem and and can get in the way of me caring for the community uh, because everyone, in my opinion, deserves the right to have access to me. If, if there's a, something I can do to help, I need to be there to help without judgment. Uh, but at the same time, it can be very sticky. So I found your code of conduct to be very, uh, uh, you know, a, a very useful tool. And I, and I hope that other people are adopting it. I, I definitely hope plan to adopt it in, in our community. Thank you so much. It's great to hear. Thank you. Now, one of the things, uh, so on the legal stuff, uh, Daniel, I hear you. I mean, uh, a lot of those things actually would be crimes in the Sharia, but not crimes sort of in the with the civil codes. So I can see how you know that's that's a problem. I definitely can understand how. Okay, I know that this sheikh is abusive, but I don't really want to uh, expose him and. You know, in, in, in many ways, one can argue that itself is an extension of the abuse. Uh, you know, the fact that you feel like you can't call out. But in your, in your guys' experience, has, has anyone reformed, like any of these abusive people, have they reformed because of your work? Or have they had like a mass exodus of students such that they're just not able to continue their work? Has it, in, in other words, has it hurt them where it counts? Has it been beneficial? Has it been impactful? For the abuser. Yeah, so when you say beneficial, you mean like uh, like stopping them from their positions and stuff? Yeah, that or they, they, they make like tauba or they, they publicly say like, yeah, I was wrong or they reform or, you know, some some sort of corrective. Yeah, so like Alhamdulillah, I mean, a lot of what we're able to do is work with uh, people who are affected and want to pursue things and guide them on how to seek justice. And we've been like successful in that. Now, in terms of the toba, I mean, again, it gets back to the narcissistic personality who often will justify the wrongs that they do. So they'll know it's wrong in the first place and not really care. And these types generally need to hit rock bottom before really getting into reforming. So it's a work in progress. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah, I just, because addressing abuse and then the person reforming are very unparalleled things. Like, I mean, they're, they're just very, very, very different. And quite frankly, we're not really there to help people recover unless they want to. Like the abusers themselves, um, it's more about helping the victims and preventatives and uh, mechanisms for accountability, like the code of conduct. Sorry, Denya, I think you were going to say something. No, I, I, um, I, I mean, I can't speak for every single person, but I, um, but I think it's arguable that it's, it's not possible. I mean, I mean, it's because like because like Donish said there are people I mean that's just how they are because they know what they're doing is wrong and they do it anyway and they either try to justify it to themselves but at 
some core level, they know that this is not something that they should be doing. And so, I mean, you're really dealing with someone who kind of lacks a conscience in many cases because they literally just don't care if they hurt people. Um, and so often these types of people, if they reform, it's really for their own benefit. Um, and so I think it's really important for people to understand that, that, um, that yes, perhaps people can, uh, can reform. I mean, if they uh, committed an act out of, you know, humanness or like that it was a mistake, but um, we should be very careful to, to claim that someone has reformed because again, I mean, these personalities, they, they just, they can easily pretend that they've reformed. Um, but like I understood, like that's not really our goal. Our goal is to help the victims in the community. Sure. No, I, I understand. Yeah. I mean, from yeah. my perspective, I'm uh, grateful for the two of you for setting this up. I'm so happy that there's a resource and you guys are doing this uh, work, um, you know, helping when you, you said a while ago, Danish, helping people uh, from committing suicide. I mean, immediately I thought of that verse, you know, whoever saves a life as, as if they have saved all of humanity. I mean, that's that's powerful work. You know, kudos to you. You know, Jazakumullah khair. I'm also concerned, though, with the abuser. And, and, and let me just be like a little personal why, because I, yeah. I, I feel like I have a little bit of skin in the game as well, which is when you the stuff that you guys are telling me, I'm sorry, these are not mashayikh. Like when you when you're telling me like this guy is like a narcissist, uh, yeah. you know, a, a, a sociopath. I'm like, well, that's not a sheikh. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't I don't care how many followers he has, what he's done, how many zawiyas he's built. That's that's not what a definition of a sheikh is. And but it's never obvious. Sorry, I, it doesn't show until like years down the line. Sometimes. No, no, no. Well, I was yeah. getting to a, another point, which is in 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 yeah. my context in the in the tradition that I'm a part of. Uh, there's a little bit more formality. So like in Egypt, for example, there is a body that that um, manages the Sufi tariqas. I mean, it, it's a laughable and not very sophisticated, but the reason, the idea behind it is that there's actual law that governs how tariqas are formed. And if somebody were to step out of line, there there is recourse in the law to to eject that path, confiscate its resources, you know, call out the sheikh as a charlatan, and that's happened in the past. I'm not saying that abuse has. I was going to say that that organization actually helped in, in in one case. Oh, great, great. Yeah. And the yeah. other the other part of it is a lot of people they say, oh, you know, we're traditional Muslims, and I know that that that's a very nebulous term and things like that, and the ijaza system it doesn't really mean anything. But in my case, it does because whoever's licensed me can take away that license and it's it's well, part of a system and i think part of the problem in north america it's like the wild wild west when it comes to islam yeah. anyone can do whatever they want can say whatever they want make any claims that they want and you know you're just you're down the rabbit hole and i think that that's very very dangerous i don't know i, I know that's not on you guys but that's something that i'm definitely thinking about is well, it, i, I want to say that like first of all when you say they're not scholars like yeah they don't live up to the ideal but even if you have the highest level of scholars, right, with like the the term ulama su is still used in hadith, right? They're still ulama, they're just ulama su. So, and also like Imam al-Ghazali had that bifurcation of ulama dunya and ulama al-akhirah, right? I mean, the point is there's still like, alim is still an outward uh, title, right? Or uh, like a station somebody reaches. Now they're not like, the, they're not the scholars and they're not the inheritors of the prophets because they don't, they have that serious like deficiency, of course. But um, the, the the thing is, even with people with all these ijazas, revoking the ijazas is a very difficult thing. Um, that's worked in a few cases, but generally it won't happen. Um, also, when people aren't are very like detached from systems, like they studied overseas and then they came here. Um, and and in other cases, I mean, you're probably just gonna have people, and this happens a lot. You just have the senior shiuch not really caring or getting involved, you know. Yeah, and, I mean, it's like not... You mentioned it's the Wild West, because like, Al-Hakim Yarfa'ul Khilaf, right? But here, it's like, if something's not not haram by ijma', then people are just going to say, well, there's ikhtilaf, ikhtilaf, ikhtilaf. And this is how people, like I mentioned earlier, people abuse ta'wil, they also abuse weak opinions. Um, and that's that's how a lot of abuse happens as well. But then beyond that, even if something's not haram, and it's not just like some, like, shad, weak, aberrant opinion, you're still going to have people who just... Um, like really misuse and this happens in khalwa a lot right so for example teachers pressuring students to take rides with them of opposite gender and just saying like well it's not technically khalwa because people can see or like someone might pass by my office so it's not technically khalwa and anytime you say technical it's like you know you know you're lying <laughs> to yourself and and you avoid best practices so these things really need to be spelled out and and honestly you might you might this other point like 
like they they'll touch for example sometimes touching women on their hijabs and saying well it's not skin to skin so it's not technically haram there's a hail between us you know a barrier between us so like they abuse things in sharia as well so sometimes when they're when the, the wrong people learn a lot of law they use it for loopholes just like you have crooked sure. lawyers right sure yeah i mean <clears throat> i remember uh, several years ago i i had a conversation with my wife actually about some of the etiquette of female students and you know she started pointing out things to me that i i just was i mean as a guy typically just oblivious to you know everything and be like oh yeah you know there's a difference between a phone call a text message a whatsapp like an email yeah i can see now that there is and i started thinking yeah there's got to be you, you need to help me develop some kind of system because you know this is i mean i take this stuff very seriously if somebody comes to me in the mosque setting you know, I, I feel that I have this eternal obligation. I mean, I really feel under the pressure. Um, and I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to, you know, be like those alamatsu, you know, Allah protect us all. So I take that stuff seriously. Unfortunately, maybe some people don't. But I do realize, and, and I'm coming back to the code of conduct, I appreciate that because I think we live in a time now in the English-speaking world where that is so necessary. Because there's a lot of sketchy stuff that happens. I mean, I've been around those loophole people. I've been in those conversations. Uh, I've had, you know, sisters reach out. Um, and, you know, I can see how it can be very dangerous. I, I even remember as a graduate student, my, my advisor was, was a woman. Um, and, you know, always just, you know, cognizant of being professional and not violating, you, you know, the professional standard. Not that there was, I was in any compromised situation, alhamdulillah, but always remembered, like, we have a code of conduct and it's professional, actually, and you just got to stick to it. But let me just try to bridge to what I was saying before. I want to read something you guys wrote under your purpose section. You say, quote, our position is that our Islamic institutions and scholars are valuable, necessary and should be respected, but we should not tolerate abuse, end quote. And that's, uh, that sentence is what really captured me. The reason I was saying I have some skin in the game, etc., one of my concerns is that I, 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 I applaud what you're doing. I think it's important. If people are on the verge of suicide, leaving their faith because some sheikh, you know, is, you know, touching women and doing all this fishy stuff, I mean, yeah, you know, you got to expose that kind of stuff. But my concern also is that people will lose faith in the institutions and the scholars altogether. And I thought maybe as we sort of come towards, you know, we've, we've been speaking now for almost an hour, maybe like after an hour of this conversation, if, you, if we can, the three of us can address that, I'd love to hear your comments. How can we preserve our respect in our institutions and our scholars, knowing that there's abuse, uh, yourselves having, you probably see a lot more than what you're sharing. How do you yourselves maintain respect for our institutions and our scholars despite knowing what's out there so I, sorry don did you want to start no that's okay go ahead start and yeah. i'm after you so i was going to say we have to understand that the abuse is going on and one of the first things we had was um about why this is necessary is we need to show muslims that we care about abuse proactively and we're not going to just, um, as a PR response, say that this is wrong and we need to address it, meaning being reactionary. We need to be proactive, understanding abuse is taking place, and we need to be motivated by our religion to address the abuse. And it's the abuse that hurts the institutions and connections to teachers, right? It's not talking about it. We didn't start in Sheikh's clothing um, just without need. It was clearly a need, you know. So the blame and the, the understanding always has to be that it's the abusers that make uh, these institutions look bad. And the way to win that favor back is by being responsible and addressing it and instilling mechanisms for uh, not ignoring abuse. Because what happens all too often in these traditional circles is you get pep talks about forgiveness and overlooking faults. And then it's not like the person is even removed where you have forgiveness. They're praised very heavily and treated as olia and literally like told by scholars who know of the abuse by religious figures that these are like saints and we should look up to them. And I think what we really, we really need to get to is understanding that how to have relationships with teachers. So one thing I always push is to say that, you know, if your teacher teaches fiqh or aqidah, that's the subject they teach. They're not your role models. Someone has to earn the higher status with you. 
and that has to be through displayed character and someone you know well. So take people like a biology teacher, and then you don't need to really get into what they're doing behind closed doors. You look at Zahirul Adala, which is just outward uprightness, and uprightness does not mean piety. It's just they're not like doing crazy things in public, right? But you don't know what their private life is, and you're not getting into that. And and a person always starts off with a clean slate. It's su'adhan when you have no reason to and you think negatively of someone. You're not allowed to do that. You just understand the phenomena exists like every other area. And you just you have your own boundaries. So we learn how to interact with teachers. Our relationship with teachers is that, you know, they're humans like everybody else. You be very procedural. If you do financial transactions, you write it down. You have a record like the Quran says to do. And this is never – we never – it's not a system if you just expect people to be like benevolent towards you and to not make mistakes. You have to understand that a person who's a fiqh teacher, okay, the teacher does not need impeccable adab. They're not going to be like very righteous people necessarily. That has to be earned and that has to be shown. So that, that's one of the main things. And, and when you don't address abuse, when uh, oppression uh, persists and it's, not, and it's not addressed, that anger, that ghadab turns into hikt, like rancor. And that turns into, when it's not addressed properly, it becomes very deep-seated and turns into hasad and and you get things like riba and just a lot of slander. So that it turns into envy, like wanting people to lose their positions, very cynical comments. And people also end up believing things without proof because they've experienced it and they know how uh, methodically institutions can cover up abuse. So they'll just project their own experiences on any other like accusation that's thrown out there saying, oh, I know what it's like. This must have been the case. This is what happens. And then actually people, innocent people's reputation can suffer as well. But you have to get back to root causes. And a lot of that's just not addressing oppression. And this has been the norm in traditional circles, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I just want to add to that too. Um, I was pretty much going to same, uh, like to say the same thing. I agree. Um, the only thing is too, is that, uh, people in general, I think we confuse respect for perfection. Is that the only way that you can respect, uh, or, or like a person or institution is if they are perfect and never make mistakes. But the reality is that that's just not the case. And so, um, I think we, uh, or, or like if we recognize that people, and like when I say people, I mean like the community, they will still respect uh, an institution uh, if they make mistakes, but they acknowledge those mistakes and then they make right what was wrong. Um, and so if, so like if, so like if, excuse me, uh, if like institutions adopt a code of ethics or code of conduct or they have a system to make sure that the the actual leadership is not engaging in um, inappropriate or illegal uh, conduct, then people will still respect the institution and people uh, will still feel safe because they know if something bad happens, it's not going to be swept under the rug. It's going to come out and um, and people's boundaries are going to be respected and their rights are going to be respected. So in your experience, have the people that you've counseled and that you've helped make this transition have you found that they're they're able to still maintain that respect trust of certain institutions and scholars or is it very difficult for them to come back the point is to build people up so they trust themselves. We never want people to go on autopilot anywhere. So when you say trust institutions, it's actually recognizing institutions and teachers for what they are, human. These are human efforts and understanding institutions often in most cases will act in self-interest and that's preservation so we also have to make the economic case for abuse so i mean some cases you've seen where people come out and you know part ways with the teacher it's to it's a pr move sometimes just to be preemptive before other victims come forward themselves this has happened in uh, some cases you know and it's just you want it, to it's more of an attempt to win public favor with people and not not look like the bad guy so you also have to show that you're willing to, you know, take action, uh, like like legal action or even publicize things with evidence and all of in all of that, if people don't do the right thing. So you have to be strong and resilient yourself. So there's no there's no type of trust where you just go on autopilot. But there's a healthy trust, just like again, like somebody in school. Teachers do horrible things. Abuse in public schools is 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 very high in this country, in, in America. It, it really is. I mean, we can look at the stats of public education, abuse in public education. It'll it'll shock you, you know? So, but there's yeah. still like a general trust. You don't believe these are righteous people. You just have your own boundaries. That's all you I can want, do. 
plus I think it's also worth um, just a, a, like distinguishing between trust and respect. Just because I respect someone doesn't mean I have to trust you. So if there's an institution and they um, and, and certain members of the institution have engaged in certain acts that that would be considered abuse, um, I may excuse me, like I'm. Or, like I can just uh, still respect them in the sense that I might still go to their gatherings because I know that they have a system in place where they can address wrongs and right. But it doesn't mean that I just give full trust. Or I guess it maybe yeah. not trust. Because I'm saying that it seems like people are interchanging or like using them interchangeably, the concept of trust and respect. Like what yeah. do these things even mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I the way I would look at it is you don't, you don't hand over your, your mind to somebody. Right. You know, you have to think for yourself. And that's why we have those rules of like, you know, the tariq is measured by the Quran and the Sunnah. That, that's what those statements right. mean is you got to think for yourself. You can't just be on autopilot, as you said, and just uh, assume that the sheikh is going to take over your life. You have to live your life. Each one of us, we have our own. Right. And that's why the example I like is like the example of the coach. I look at the sheikh as like the coach. He's like behind you, you know, telling you how to play the game and giving you strategies. But you got to play the game. Right, exactly. And and I, Tariq, I wanted to add that, like, you know, Allah says, So this is a, and, and really, when you show organizations that you're strong, you're resilient, that's actually a type of ta'awun because it's a check for them as well that, like, you know, there's some repercussions even in this world for abusing. You can't just rely on people's taqwa to do the right thing. And and this is overall healthier for everybody to just, it's it's a check and balance, you know, to understand that, like, if you're not willing to do the right thing, I'm going to seek other, you know, remedies. And then that, that again, that motivates institutions to do the right thing. It's, it's unfortunately not just doing it for the sake of doing the right thing. And just like you mentioned, yeah, that's the whole build of trust to understand that a teacher, a sheikh, and a tariqa is like a coach. Just as you mentioned, you have to go out and do the work. No one in exercise will lose the weight for you, right? Yeah. They yeah. can tell. Yeah. <laughs> So, guys, uh, it's been an hour. I want to be respectful of your time. I mean, I have a lot more I would love to ask you, uh, but I think that this might be a good time. I, I won't say to stop, but to pause. Hopefully in the future we can have a follow-up conversation. And I wanted to ask both of you individually if there's anything, you know, you have, you have the last word, if there's anything you want to add. I will definitely have a link to the website, uh, all of the resources that we've mentioned. Uh, if there's anything you want to add in the conversation for listeners to keep in mind, uh, now is the time to do it. I, I don't. I I don't think I have anything. Honestly, I think we've covered everything that was within the scope of the conversation. Yeah, my 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 last words would just really just to be that we have to, as individuals, understand that there will always be vulnerable people that education and preventatives won't really prevent them from being abused because just like you look at people who fall for scams that most people would deem ridiculous there are people who are always more susceptible to that and oftentimes they're looking for a refuge from other types of abuse or bullying they get in other circles and it's the it's the ultimate betrayal when religious circles target these individuals for further exploitation and we have to understand that the blame of that action has to be on the perpetrator, not on the person targeted. And as a community, we really have to stand up for one another and not feel that, you know, this is airing dirty laundry and things of that nature, which just allow abuse to perpetuate and create more cynicism about religion. So everyone, again, has a clean slate, but we can't turn a blind eye to abuse. It's a good place to end. Danish, Danny, thank you so much. On a personal note, if there's anything you feel I can do to help, I mean, offline, uh, please feel free uh, to reach out to me. This is something that I care deeply about uh, as somebody who has students and is in the community setting on a weekly, daily, weekly basis. I'm definitely aware of um, the necessity for a code of conduct, uh, a way of dealing with the problem. So if there's anything you feel I can, I can do to help in any way, please uh, consider me. Uh, a friend to reach out to, um, inquisitive friend, let's say. I'll always ask questions. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Definitely will yeah, thanks again for having us.